Jess, Leonardo, the human soap maker last week was simply insane. I'm curious of how you're going to top that for our Halloween episode. This week, we have an extra spooky, extra macabre, extra morbid Halloween episode about a love story that even death could not stop. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Cray. And this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where we discover just how spooky scary supposedly normal people can really be. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay. Andy, it's spooky times number two. Everyone, last week's was insane. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't listened to it, I totally recommend going back and checking it out. But probably not before you listen to this special episode. Oh, (laughs) really? Yeah. I'm so into this story that I don't even want you to to hit the pause button and go back. I want you just to stay in this (laughs) – dirty, nitty-gritty, bizarro world story with me for Halloween. All right, let's do it, man. Yeah, let's jump right in. The night was dark, almost black, eerily still and calm, even for the early morning hours in balmy Key West. Eerier still for the location, a cemetery. There, the nervous groom dressed in a wedding tuxedo. An older gentleman named Count Karl Tanzler von Kossel. Excuse prepared me? To... <laughs> yep, that's his name. Kind of. You'll see. Okay. It's what he's going by anyway. Karl was prepared to meet and spirit away his young bride. Karl was experiencing a once-in-a-million-lifetimes love, his truest heart's desire, her face ordained to him in a dream years before her actual birth. It was a love worth risking everything for, and he certainly would. (laughs) Once the rescue mission began, it would have to be carried out in completion. There was no halfway here. Carl was alone as he approached his bride, trusting no one to aid the couple, knowing there was no one who would approve of their union. Too much separated the star-crossed lovers. Decades of age, culture, circumstance, class, and even, dare I say, life. Sorry, this this story really gets me. Carl trembled as he approached Elena, carrying with him a wagon, blanket, cushions, and rope. He whispered softly to his love that he had come to save her and crept down the stairs of the mausoleum. A black crucifix above her head glowed in the soft streetlight as the Count extracted the inner casket from the heavy outer one. Excuse me? You're going to have to say excuse me a lot because (laughs) this is about to get weird. Not daring to take the time to open the casket and feast upon his beloved's face, he gently murmured words of affection as he struggled to tie the inner casket to the children's wagon and close the crypt tightly behind him. 
My darling, I have come to fulfill my promise to you. Sleep now, darling, gently for a while until you are with me. God bless you. Peering out into the quiet night, he determined no mortal was witnessing their elopement. But alone, they were not. The Count later wrote in his memoir, All of the cemetery was alive with souls which came out of the graves from all sides, moving and thronging all around us. It was indeed like a festival among the departed as they moved up on all sides. It was like a great divine wedding march for me. It could not have been a funeral march, for all seemed happy and joyful and interested in silent admiration, watching as the white forms of angels filed past with Elena and me in their midst. They were everywhere, none blocking our way, but all of them melting out of our way. It seemed as though they were all delighted and desirous to help us. The little cart, for all its weight, seemed almost to run by itself. It responded to the slightest touch of my hand, which gave me the impression of being aided on by friendly hands reaching out of the ground. Oh my god. Is this, the Count is a real human? The Count is an alive person. He's He once was a real person, though it seems very hard to believe. And these were his real memoirs. We're going to be taking a lot from his memoirs today. <laughs> Von Kossel's own spirits soared as the graveyard spirits wished him and Elena adieu. Until disaster struck while he attempted to lift his beloved's casket over the cemetery fence. Tipping the casket released streams of foul liquid onto his new hat and wedding tuxedo. A potent perfume of death cultivated in the two years that lovely Elena had been not among the living. Mm. Mm. Agitated and bathed in death with the neighborhood dogs wailing unholy howls, he set off in the night to hide away his love. To protect her, to resurrect her, to restore her, and yes, to love her. For seven years, the couple would live in private harmony and union until a discovery would rock their lives, the sleepy community of Key West. You mean and the his life at large? <laughs> her afterlife it would rock her afterlife. This is the gruesome love story of the unholy union of Count Tanzler von Kossel and his unwitting corpse bride, Elena Milagro Oyos. Oh, wow. I feel oh, like you can just yeah. drop the mic and end, we can end the episode <laughs> just, now. Just end the story. <laughs> so, happy Halloween, everyone. My gift to you is necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody wants. Trick or treat. <laughs> oh, wow. I really need to know some backstory details here. Yes. So we are going to jump right into Carl uh, Tanzler's life. It is one of murky origin, let's say. He lies a lot in his memoirs about what his past is. So here's what we know for sure. He was born Carl Tanzler on January 12, 1877 in Dresden, Germany. He claimed to be a count and have the surname of von Kossel, but neither was true. 
He adopted the Von Kossel from a distant ancestor he claimed to be related to, and he formally added it to his given name of Tonsler when he became a U.S. citizen officially in 1950. He also claimed to have served with the Australian Army in World War I as an x-ray technician, but it's far more likely he was either in prison there as a prisoner of war after serving <laughs> in the German Army or that he was never there at all. So. Wow. We don't know. At some point, he ended up back in Germany. He married a German woman named Doris and had two daughters. He immigrated to the United States in 1926 and moved to Zephyr Hills, Florida, where his sister was already living. In 1927, his family joined him in Florida, but he soon separated from his wife, uh, though he never legally divorced her. He claimed their massive age difference and her quarrelsome warlike temperament were the reasons for their split. What was their age difference? Uh, I think they were around – she was mid-20s and he was 50. So they were like I think somewhere around 25 years apart, give or take. I mean I guess it's kind of hard to admit that you're just not into live chicks, you know. (laughs) She's just not his type. (laughs) So Carl struck out for Key West alone and eventually found a position in a hospital. He claimed to have trained as a doctor in Germany, but it's also unclear whether that was true. In any case, he worked his way up from a janitor to an x-ray technician at the Navy Marine Hospital in Key West. It was in this capacity that he would meet the otherworldly love of his life, Elena Milagro Hoyos. Wow. Elena was a first-generation Cuban-American, the middle child of three daughters born to loving parents and a joyous extended family. The girls loved dancing and singing growing up and often attended dances held at the Cuban Club on Duval Street, mastering the rumba, samba, and cha-cha. The Oyos family had fallen onto hard times like many families during the late 20s and early 30s, but Elena was always happy, bright, and well-dressed. She was a famous beauty and known for her vivaciousness and pleasant disposition. When she was 18, she married a young man named Luis Mesa in their wedding portrait, which we'll definitely put up on the uh, IG. The two young lovebirds look handsome, healthy, and excited to begin their life together. Alas, the newlywed bliss was short-lived. Though the couple conceived quickly after the wedding, Elena sadly lost the baby a couple months into her pregnancy. Yikes. Yeah. Around then, her friends and family started noticing her looking sickly, but they chalked this up to her, you know, grieving the loss of her unborn child. However, as her health continued to deteriorate, her parents finally encouraged her to see a doctor. It was then that the young beauty was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Oof, TB. TB, not good, man. This is the hits just keep coming for Elena over here. Today, TB is treated with several drugs, including chemotherapy, and is generally not considered fatal. Unfortunately for Elena and many others like her at this time, there was very little the doctors could do for her other than diagnose the disease and attempt experimental treatments. Yeah. Of the various strains of tuberculosis, the most dangerous form, and unfortunately the kind Elena had, was a type termed hasty consumption because it quickly consumed those unfortunate enough to contract it. Realizing the seriousness of her condition, the doctor immediately referred her to the Naval Marine Hospital for a blood test and an x-ray. It was here Tonsler first laid eyes on Elena, and his reaction was recorded in his memoir. So I'm using the book Undying Love by Ben Harrison. Um, We'll use some pictures that he collected. It's a really fascinating 
biography slash historical true crime book. Um, and he took a lot from Tanzler's own memoirs. So most of the parts that I am going to be taking, I think actually all of the parts that I'm, you know, borrowing from the book are actually from Tanzler's memoirs himself. And we will get to witness firsthand how completely unhinged this guy is. <laughs> so this is from his memoirs and this is from the very first moment that he met Elena while she was topside. In the middle of my routine work, I received a call from the head office to go and take a blood test from a young senorita who, as an outpatient, had come for an examination. Yep, he said senorita. Oh my god. <laughs> I hardly looked at the patient as I entered the room. The first thing I noticed of her personality is I bent down to take a drop of blood from one of her fingertips, rather than one of her ears, which were too exquisitely lovely to mar, was Ugh. that her hand was unusually small, its long tapering fingers the loveliest I had ever seen. As the needle struck, the hand twitched a little, and it was then that from my kneeling position I raised my head for the first time to say, I'm very sorry to have caused you pain. Forgive me, please. Her face had been hidden by her hand so that I had hardly seen it as I first entered the room. But now she withdrew her hand to answer me and I looked into a face of unearthly beauty, the face of the bride which had been promised to me by my ancestor 40 years before. All right, bro. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was so thunderstruck, I hardly heard her saying, it didn't hurt much, excuse my nervousness. Her voice was soft and sweet and childlike. It reminded me of a mockingbird's song in spring. She spoke with a Spanish accent, yet her English was cultured and quite good. Having performed the duty for which I had been called, I had no excuse to stay any longer in the room. Feeling very shaky, I arose, and, much too confused to say anything, I merely bowed myself out, not knowing whether I was walking or dreaming. <laughs> oh yeah, this is just a taste. We're gonna get a lot more Tanzler oh, in this. Oh god. Uh-huh. So you probably noticed that he mentioned something a little strange about the face of the bride promised to me 40 years before. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> this is because Tanzler claimed that he had been visited when he was a young boy by a ghostly ancestor who showed him the face of his future wife. He writes of this experience in the following, again from his memoirs. <laughs> this, this guy's memoirs is just the gift that keeps giving. I was mysteriously awakened at around 2 a.m. I hardly believed my eyes. There were, however, standing by my bed, two women, one bending over my face, a tall lady with snow-white hair, a striking likeness to the portrait of the Countess Anna, which I remembered so well. The second figure kept somewhat behind her, as if trying to hide. I would, too, if I was his promised bride. Yeah. And the Countess held the reluctant younger lady by the hand. Bending still lower and staring at me, the Countess Anna addressed me as follows. I've been trying to get your attention for quite some time, my boy, but you wouldn't take note. You were too much engrossed in your experiments. That's why I had to use some violence. Look here, Carl, I have brought you the bride, whom some day you will meet. I tried to answer something, but I could not speak. I had plenty of words, but I could not open my jaws. The Countess now stepped a little aside, and at the same time she drew her companion nearer to me. For a very brief moment the veil parted from the shrouded figure's face. Spellbound I saw, framed in a long, dark, black hair— 
a young girl's face, so beautiful I can't attempt to describe it. For a fleeting second, I saw the girl smile at me, a wonderful smile. But at that moment, the Countess Anna detached herself from my arm, which she had touched, and the apparition quite suddenly disappeared. Strange as this may seem, I was in no way overexcited. It all seemed very natural, if very wonderful to me. With a feeling of relief and quiet happiness, I just noted the time on my clock, two o'clock, and then fell back into sound sleep. When did he write that? When he was a child or? No, he wrote his memoirs after everything happens during the story. Okay, so he was as an adult recounting something that happened when he was a kid. Okay. Exactly. So all of this takes place. I mean, he has to be in his 60s at least by the time he writes these memoirs. It'd be more interesting if he, if that was like from a journal entry from when he was a child and then he met her or something exactly yeah this is just something he claims that happened to him yeah so tansler discovered that elena was married when he perused her paperwork but this was no matter to him he wrote what after all did it matter if she belonged to another hadn't i also belonged to another years ago all this had little to do with me and elena the main thing was that i found her and that she was ill and that i was best qualified and in a position to help her so this is literally the only mention he makes of his wife in the entirety of his memoirs. That one throwaway line about he had once belonged to another is the only thing he says about his still legal wife Doris. and the mother of his children. Yep. Wow. So he's egomaniac. He's an egomaniac and he's very self-centered and narcissistic. Yeah. Okay. Luckily for Carl and very unluckily for Elena, her marital status was soon to change. Shortly after her TB diagnosis, Louise abandoned her for another woman and moved to Miami. Yeah, though he claimed her illness had nothing to do with his hasty retreat, it seems that he feared contracting the deadly disease and slash or being forced to care for an ailing spouse while he was still in the prime of his life. So he's just a freaking coward. Douche. Yeah. Total douche. Like, in sickness and in health, dude. So, Tansler was delighted. While on a follow-up visit, he inquired to the health of her husband, and she sadly informed him that the marriage was no more. Things took a decidedly creepy turn when he told her, in order for the x-ray machine to clearly see her lungs and body, she needed to remove all of her clothing and her undergarments. Everything. (sighs) Mm-hmm. And then that he's like, so bad. He's like, oh, I'll just lower the lights and I have to be here to, you know, operate the machinery. But I'm a doctor. Don't worry. What a creep. So gross. So even worse, though, than a middle-aged dirtbag peeping on you during a medical crisis was what the x-ray ultimately showed. Multiple lesions confirming advanced tuberculosis. Oh, no. Uh-huh. At this point, Carl took an obsessive and inappropriate interest in her case and began performing house calls without the hospital's knowledge. Ew. He's also an x-ray technician. He says that he was a doctor in Germany, but there's no evidence. And by, you know, the 1920s, 19... I think she ends up passing away in 1931. By that time, you should be able to have records that transfer that say you were a doctor in Germany. Oh, for sure. They'll be handwritten, but they're records. (laughs) Exactly. So he is in no way qualified 
or is being, you know, allowed by the hospital to do this. What a creep. Uh-huh. So according to his memoir, he makes it sound like this is all on the up and up with the hospital, but they had no records of these visits. So they were clearly not approved. Oh my God, it's so gross. Poor girl, like just being hunted on while she's also like yes, trying to battle this, is this disease. A predator, and he's preying on the fact that her family is also lower income. Ugh. And they'll take whatever help they can get to save their, their daughter and sister, you know? Uh. So this is what he wrote in his memoir about her treatment. Since our hospital lacked the equipment I wished to use for Elena, and moreover, I considered the Florida climate as unfavorable for her condition, I proposed to send her at my own expense, of course, to some famous tuberculosis institution abroad, where I was reasonably certain she would be cured. This offer she refused because, in the first place, with the euphoria so typical with tuberculosis patients, she did not realize the seriousness of her condition. This left me with only one choice. I had to procure at least the electrical equipment to treat her right on the spot. I wrote to several firms for the necessary apparatus, and some of it I started building myself. In the meantime, I decided to give her radiation therapy with the hospital equipment, although the service outfit was not powerful enough for deep radiation therapy. Whatever was left of my spare time, I spent on the completion of an airplane I had started to construct some time ago. What? So an airplane just entered this story. <laughs> so the plane he refers to at the end of that passage was a wrecked airplane that he had hauled behind the hospital and hoped to restore. And I don't know what hospitals were like in the 1920s, but apparently they they let their employees take liberal use of the employee parking lot. Hey, do you guys mind if I just store this plane I found? <laughs> well, the funniest thing was that it had no wings. It was a giant wingless monstrosity that he, spoiler alert, never restored. So it was never airborne again. He had this ongoing fantasy, and he told Elena this, of healing her and then taking her around the world on his handcrafted airplane. Whoa. Also, I don't want to be in anyone's handcrafted airplane. <laughs> I've already told you guys how I feel about skydiving. Like, I'm going to also tell you homemade airplanes. No, thank you. You like overcome one of the most challenging diseases at that time. And, <laughs> and then the guy that heals you wants to take you on his handicraft airplane. Yeah, no, Using, thank you. Using like duct tape to like put the wings <laughs> on. I use duct tape and Legos. It's great. <laughs> Let's do this thing. Oh, my God. Yep. So, of course, this was never going to happen for many reasons. So, Elena's parents were beside themselves with worry for their terminally ill, very young daughter and barely getting by without costly medical treatments. So, their desperation and poverty caused them initially to welcome the strange man who claimed to be a doctor. Tonsler did have a great presence. He seemed extremely well-educated. He worked at the hospital, and he offered advanced treatments and home visits at zero cost. So as a parent, I think I'd probably be relieved if, you know, I was having a hard time affording this, that somebody who seemed like a doctor was willing to do all of these treatments pro bono, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
there's no online social media Facebook that you can even cross check this bro at. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can't really go like, to his Yelp reviews here. <laughs> How's his health grades? Exactly. Yeah. However, their concerns grew when Tonsler visited Elena for her 21st birthday and proposed to her. Oh, God. Inappropriate. Yeah. He brought her a ring, cake, roses, and wine to celebrate. So she politely rebuffed his proposal, saying although her husband had left her, she was still married in the eyes of God. And what's furthermore, she was dying. He just confused Elena more when he revealed that she had come to him in a dream when he was a boy. So she's like, okay, I already knew you were wackadoodle, and now you're just going to come out and say that I'm your bride Pre- from before I was Predetermined born. bride. Yeah. So this is um, from his memoirs about how he was trying to Convince her to marry him. Elena, forget about him. You were meant to be with me. It's our destiny. Of course, there is no way you could know, but you've been looking for me longer than you've been alive. I'm sure of it. I'm positive. You appeared to me when I was only 12 years old. I was playing the organ at our castle in Germany. He did not have a castle in Germany. No, and didn't he just say he was he was aw- awoken? So there's... Like three different occurrences that he writes about in his memoirs about like being startled by this ghost of his ancestors. So the one he writes about really seeing Elena is the one I read to you. Uh-huh. But I guess I guess this other account is nestled in with like some other ghostly occurrences. I mean, I guess when you're just like lying all the time, it's really hard to <laughs> keep keep track of what. And then you came to me while I was. Playing piano at my castle. And then in the night with my ancestor from the fireplace. And then the night before Christmas. And I was with my friend Ebenezer. We visited the past, present, and future. Sure. There you were. There you were. You were my past, present, and my future. Oh, my God. This poor girl. Uh, can you imagine? Like, she's no. dying. That's enough. Leave, That's enough. Leave her alone. You appeared to me when I was only 12 years old. I was playing the organ at our castle in Germany. I can't. When a violent thunderstorm blew across the countryside. Before the storm, I was playing pianissimo. Then, as the thunder crashed, I began playing full organ fortissimo. The wind blew the door open. It was you, Elena, who rushed through the door, kissed me, and vanished. Elena gave me a sad look. I bet she did. Carl, I don't even know what you're talking about. How could I look for you before I was born? Let me get well first. Then we'll see what will happen. Oh, woof. Tonsler began to make constant, uninvited house visits, showering Elena with gifts and begging her to be his wife, until her parents became so uncomfortable with his unwelcome overtures that they finally stopped showing up at their marine hospital appointments and began seeking out other medical opinions on health. Their pulling away, of course, only increased Tonsler's obsessive need to see and treat Elena. The other doctors could offer no other diagnosis or treatment other than pain meds to make her more comfortable as she deteriorated. So the Oyo's family was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Allow the creepy obsessive to continue to treat her with promises of recovery or just let her go in peace. Yeah. 
Eventually, they decided to let Elena enjoy her last days on Earth without the increasingly bizarre so-called Count interfering, and they moved without telling him the new address to get away from him. Unfortunately for the Oijos, a well-meaning neighbor passed along their new address, assuming Tonsler was Elena's physician. Oh, no. Uh-huh. So he found her. Elena was in bad condition by the time Tonsler tracked her down again, and he began to treat her with electric currents emitted from a small inductor box. It was during one of these visits that Tonsler claimed that Elena said her wedding vows to him, which even through his lens, you can tell that's not what happened. No. The visits to her home were always the same. First, the presents, including wine and fruit, then the electrodes that Von Kossel painstakingly put on her chest. The electricity that surged through her body literally jolted her until she cried out. What Carl did to enable him to visit was buy his way back into Elena's life. In return, she allowed him to treat her and naturally examine her chest as a doctor must. So he's groping up. Oh, God. Electricity, the unlikely third corner of a love triangle, consummated the extraordinary attachment this physician had for his patient. It was after one of these treatments that Carl, in his memoirs, claimed Elena initiated a wedding of sorts. If I must die, all I can leave you is my body, for I am only a sick girl, so I can't marry you while I am sick. But you will take care of my body after I'm dead, won't you? What? No one would ever say that. No, but is she not well? Well, this is from him. He's saying she said this. Oh, got you. Yeah. I promised I would, and it was the most sacred promise which I ever made in my life. I kissed her then and laid her gently back into her cushions and put her feet high as to get the blood circulation back into her head, for her breath was getting short. This is what I considered as our marriage vow. Uh And so that's what he says was her marriage vow, that she said, take care of my body after I'm gone. And he's still married, right? Oh, yeah. He's still legally married. Wow. And so is she. So also then the next part discusses this song that she was playing on the radio that he decided was their song. A pivotal coincidence, at least in Von Kassel's mind, occurred after the unusual ceremony described above when Elena introduced him to one of her favorite songs. When the doctor entered her room, she was propped up in her bed, browsing through a mail-order catalog. As if by some preordained design, the song that was playing on the radio was La Boda Negra, The Black Wedding. The beauty of the melody caught Von Kassel's attention, and she translated the story for him. So it's in Spanish, but I'm just going to read the English translation because you guys do not want to hear me butcher a Spanish accent. Let me tell you all a story I was told by an undertaker of the region. A young man's lover died before their wedding. Without her love, he simply could not reason. At night, he would visit the graveyard until he could stand it no longer, she explained. Rescuing her from the grave, he placed her body on a bed of flowers and then, before taking his own life, recited his wedding vows with his dead lover. Her rigid skeleton he embraced. La Boda Negra, the black wedding, the song enthralled him. And after hearing it a second time, he considered this dark foreboding ode to death their song. Elena loved to sing, and though she was weak, she could get through a couple of verses before running out of breath and closing her eyes. It's very Beetlejuice. It's very Beetlejuice. Sadly, despite Tanzler's ministrations, Elena passed away at her home with her family on October 25th, 1931. Oh which my God! 
is exactly 89 years today while we're recording this. Whoa. Crazy. Rest in peace, Elena. R.I.P., babes. R.I.P., babes. But we know that you didn't for a few years. You rested with very little peace. I think they said seven years, right? Yeah. Oof. Okay, wait. Let's let's get into that. At least her soul is rested. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. what, like, I always <laughs> – so I was talking to Nathaniel about this case. And I was like, well, you know, I always think this when, like, we talk about cases where somebody's raped and then murdered. And for some reason, people are even, like, more grossed out when people are murdered and then raped after they're dead. And I'm always like – I would so much rather be killed and then they can do whatever they want with my corpse because I'm gone. Yep. Yep. And yeah, like 100%, I was like, I don't care what you do. Like, in fact, like I would like to be cremated. And of course, I don't want to be set on fire when I'm alive. So who cares what happens to my body? Yeah. And Nathaniel was like, Jesse, this story is not creepy because like we are all like worried about what happened to her. The story is creepy because – this guy was boning a dead girl. Like, we're creeped out by him. We're not like, oh, that poor thing. And I was like, uh, oh, oh, it's about what he did, not what she suffered. And he's like, yes, it's about how creepy it is. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I was like, I mean, I wasn't like defending him. I was just like, eh, when you're dead, you're dead. Who cares? <laughs> I think it's probably like so different for Spanish culture though too. Like Cuban culture yes, probably the like desecration yeah. of a body. I think they were Catholic too. I was so just gonna say a body yeah. is very important to Sacred. the whole spiritual process. Yeah. Oh. So her brother-in-law Mario, the husband of her older sister Nana, came to fetch Tonsler as she was in her death throes. By the time he arrived, she was gone. He went hysterical, blaming the family for allowing her to take car rides in her last days, lashing out at them for not sending for him earlier. Tansler insisted on paying for Elena's funeral expenses, afraid that the Oyhos couldn't afford the finery his beloved deserved. The family held a funeral the very next day, one at which the Count inserted himself at every juncture. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Though they were relieved that he had covered the cost of all of Elena's funerary needs, they were perplexed when Tanzler announced not only his plans to build an ornate mausoleum for her, but also that he planned to move into their house and into Elena's bedroom. What? Uh, he said in his memoirs that he informed them, no matter whether you move or stay on, I'm going to live in my Elena's room where she has lived and died because I distinctly feel at home in her presence. To this they agreed, and from then on, I slept in Elena's bed. It still preserved the sweet scent of her hair. What? Wow. And they never were intimate at all. No. Her family maintains that she had no romantic feelings for him she was definitely a very sweet girl who was like oh it's fine like it's fine that he has a crush like yeah he's harmless guys are never harmless I know I mean I'm sure you and I said the same thing about like some creepy guys that came to see us at the bar I'm sure I'm sure and we were like whatever they're just a nice regular no you don't know that after they're always die, trying to get in our pants <laughs> always always <laughs> yeah, so I think she was just like, oh, whatever. He's just a harmless old guy. And 
she'd never had any romantic feelings towards him. Oh, God. So obviously it seems very, very, very weird indeed that Elena's parents consented to this bizarre arrangement. But they were totally in grief, they were confused, and were in the Great Depression. So they sorely needed the $5 a month that Tanzler was offering them for the room and board. $5. $5. That's all. So then he set out to construct the massive mausoleum, fit for his princess. It actually is. We'll put this picture up on the IG, too. It's really lovely. It looks like some of those beautiful tombs we saw in the cemetario in Buenos Aires. Yeah. Yeah, like just gorgeous, like really beautiful, ornate, well-constructed. Once the crypt was complete, he got permission from Elena's family and the state of Florida to disinter her from the grave and rebury her in the palatial mausoleum. Elena, at this point, had been dead for months. Tonsler paid the mortician extra money so he would be allowed at every step of the rebedding process and even access Elena's corpse late at night when no one else was in the morgue. Ew. Ew, for real. When the mausoleum was finished, Tonsler was quite pleased with the work. He wrote, It looked more like a pleasant summer residence than a burial place, and that it really was for my dear bride. This is exactly what I desired for her, and I felt sure she would like this, her new little house. Onlookers passing by said that they would like to move in and make it their own. Once Elena was once again laid to rest, Tonsler spent the next 18 months spending every waking moment not working, visiting her in the crypt, speaking and singing to his sweetheart. Ew. Mm-hmm. He had a key. So he would like literally go in and sit with her corpse. In his memoirs, he recalls full conversations he had with Elena. It was nearly two years since her death when Tonsler claimed it was Elena who begged him to take her home with him. Dear Elena, everyone thought it was the end, didn't they? We knew, didn't we, that it was only the beginning. Now, in death, no one can take you from me. I know how relieved you were when I removed your coffin from the ground. I knew you weren't safe from the torrential rains. I couldn't stand to have your beautiful form perish from the groundwater. It's hard to believe that I've been visiting you here for almost two years. When I put my hands on your casket, it always feels warm. It feels as though electricity is passing through my arms. Do you like this little house I built for you? The rumble of distant thunder was a fitting percussive note for what was about to transpire. (laughs) You love me, Carlos? Putting his mouth to the valve. So I'm assuming that's the valve in the casket. He replied, Elena, why would you say such a thing? You do still love me, don't you, Carlos? Of course I love you. Why would I visit you night after night? Tell me then, Carlos, am I really dead? No, Elena, you are not dead. Your body is asleep. Your spirit is dreaming. Carlos, where do I live? You live in the little house I built for you. I built it to protect you. I wanted you to be safe. Is this your house too? No, Elena, I come here to visit you. Carlos, listen to me. I want to go home with you. I want to be with you. According Crazy. to Von <laughs> Yes, it's so bananas. According to Von Castle, it was Elena's plan that he enacted that dark and fateful night to spirit <clears throat> away her body so the two could live comfortably in privacy evermore. So after the rescue mission I detailed in the intro, which was just grave robbing, really. Yeah. 
Uh, Carl brought the corpse to a little shed he had rented as a halfway house to keep Elena in until he could bring her home for good. Now, as you will surely recall, he had just spilled corpse juice all over his wedding suit. So he stinks of congealed, decaying body by the time he gets Elena settled. But the shack doesn't have running water. So he bathes in whiskey to mask the smell. Wow. He said, yes, still smelling strong, but more like liquor now. I closed up the house and went home by a long roundabout way so as to give the wind and air a chance to take away the odor and give my clothes a chance to dry. Bro. Which he's going home to her family's house. Yep. This is insane. So eventually he moved the coffin into his wingless airplane that was parked behind the hospital and he began to look. (laughs) What? He began to look for permanent place to keep Elena and so they could begin their honeymoon. So now that he actually physically possessed her, he didn't feel like he needed to live at her family's home anymore. And furthermore, he obviously could not bring her home there where she'd be discovered by her family who would be really distressed to find out he had taken her corpse from the mausoleum. Oh, my God. So he found a dilapidated shack on Rest Beach that boasted considerable privacy and a garage-like structure where he could house his airplane. On moving day, he paid Mario, Elena's brother-in-law, to help haul the plane behind a rented truck and settled it into its new home on Rest Beach. Little did Mario know he was hauling his long-dead sister-in-law's corpse. Yeah, I was going to ask you if she was in there still. Uh-huh. He had no Gross. idea. And they talked about how, obviously, this plane was so bizarre. So there was almost like a little parade as they, like, hauled it through the streets of Key West and people were like coming out and like shouting at them and being like, where'd you get the plane and stuff? And nobody knew that there was a dead body inside of it. Oh my God. Once settled in their new abode, Tanzler began some extremely questionable restorative measures and grew quite intimate with the corpse. Again, in his own words, Let's hear what Carl said about his first days being reunited with Elena. Oh, my God. My very soul was tortured when I saw her awful condition. I resolved that I would help her out of this awful mess at once. She was my beloved bride. My promise to take care of her was a sacred one. With the greatest of care, I now detached the uppermost layers of clothing, which were overgrown and eaten up with slimy molds. I then got a large bucket and deposited rags into it until it was filled. Careful peeling of all of the pieces around the head, face, and chest first. I found many pieces had become glued to the skin. All of those which did not come off easily, I left on her body to soak for the time being, as it might injure her delicate skin. She's been dead for two years. Two years? Two years at this point. Oh, I thought it was a couple months. Yeah, dude, like, that, her flesh is going to come off of her fucking face. Yeah, you try so to pull that off. That's why you're not. He had, they had originally buried her in the ground, and then he built the mausoleum, and then a few months after she died, they moved her in the mausoleum. Got it. Okay. And then, like, eight, somewhere between 18 months and two years was when he stole her 
from the mausoleum. So she's been dead for over two years at this point when he's doing whatever he's doing to the corpse. Ugh. The, <laughs> the bucket was heaping full and heavy. It had to be removed quickly as the odor was overpowering. Yeah. <laughs> then I prepared some soap solution and wetted all places and surfaces where rags were adhering to her body. Little by little, the pieces loosened and came off, but not all of them that first night. Again and again, I washed her body, tilting it carefully, first on one side, then on the other, so as to wash the back and remove the rags from underneath. The bucket filled up once more and had to be taken out. I rinsed her body and also inside the coffin thoroughly, but I used a fennel solution, this time for disinfecting and to remove the last traces of odor. After that, I dried her entire body, drained the coffin, and sponged it thoroughly. I could find little time to rest, to examine her body, and to study its condition more thoroughly. I looked into the deep, fallen cavities of the eyes, like deep, empty black holes. I saw her dried-up lips, slightly parted, with her white teeth gleaming between them. And when looking so long and deep into those black openings, where once her beautiful eyes shone so bright, Whoa. it was strange indeed. It seemed as if a pair of pupils were forming again, deep inside, and were looking at me from the bottom of a well, straight and seriously. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. My angel was pure, despite the mud and slimy rags in which she had been lying for so many months. And then I heard a soft voice speak into my ear. Now will you love me no more, will you? These words cut into my heart. Like an arrow, they set me on fire with sacred love for her. I assured her, <laughs> Darling, I love you more than ever before. If it were not so, I would not have taken you to me. Then, kissing her dry lips and breathing deeply into her lungs until her bosom rose, I unpacked her bridal gown and covered her body with it. I draped her with a silk veil and adorned her head and hair with a golden crown. She looked so wonderful now, I could not resist the wondrous spell and trembling with burning love. I sank gently into the coffin with her and kissed her as if she were alive. Oh, so Long she's like conscious and aware that she's a corpse. Yes. Okay. Yes. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. I don't know because it's like... It's like I, when, he's having these like fake conversations on her behalf with himself. So it's like, is he just thinking of the soul? I Yeah. And I mean, it gets into, you know, later on, they're going to have a sanity hearing about him. And it does get into questions about what is sanity. And also like, you know, there's a lot of people that I don't necessarily discount that – feel they get messages from God or from the other side or people who are mediums or psychics and they're not insane. So how do we judge this? How do we judge how he's really mentally doing at this point, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, is his sanity or lack thereof the thing that's allowing him to <clears throat> physically harm this corpse or is he – I, I don't know. It's twisted. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel he's not speaking to real Elena, obviously. I don't think any spirit who passed would be like, yeah, let's get it on, bro. Rape my body. Woohoo. No. No. <laughs> no. No. And also, like, his wife is just, like, chilling with the kids. Like, imagine if she, like, walked in on this. 
Well, so she's in Zephyr Hills. He's in Key West. They're far away from each other, but they're both in okay. Florida. Yeah. Um, he has basically abandoned them at this point. Okay. So they're estranged, but they are still legally married. I mean, she could potentially hunt him down, but it seems like she's mostly left him to his own devices. She is actually a pretty dope single woman who got her own job. She's, like, doing really well despite it being the depression. She's working for herself. She's, like, raising these two kids without his help. Yeah. So Doris is, like, holding it down. She doesn't really have the time. She really is. She's, like, doing great. Yeah. As great as one can be when their estranged husband is uh, boning a dead girl. (laughs) Wait, so to finish that segment of his memoirs up, Long I lay thus, holding her closely to me, the living and the dead united in love. The sweetness of this was divine. Never had I dreamt that she had preserved so sweet and so intense a love for me after being in the grave for so long. Was it possible? I could hardly grasp or believe it, but there was the undeniable evidence. Life and death united together, eye to eye, long and silent we lay. We needed no words. I mean... I don't think she was offering you any anyway. Yeah. What are you expecting, dude? Yeah, words could not express the heavenly bliss that we were experiencing. We were two kindred spirits flowing together. It was soul resting within soul. It was sweet and lovely beyond human words or understanding. God bless her soul and body. Well, at Rest Beach, Carl did numerous experiments on the corpse. He submerged it in a special incubation tank with solution to artificially plump the remaining tissue. He recorded in his journals that he brought the corpse's weight up from 30 pounds to 90 during their time at the beach hut. Whoa. Yeah. So I think it was through like a certain saline solution that he was like pumping into and around her body. He also purchased her glass eyes covered the parts of her body and face that were you know deteriorating with wax and bought gallons of perfume to cover the scent of decay and he also dressed her in silks (laughs) during these years carl's real life daughter crystal had taken ill and died and he had neither gone to the funeral nor did he send any money to help with the expenses what a tool Yeah, apparently he had stopped spending money um, to his family back when Elena was like – when he first met Elena. When he started trying to treat her for like fancy experimental treatments and buying her all the stuff he was using to woo her, he essentially took that money that he had been sending to his family and completely gave it over. Yep, exactly. Carl would describe his years at Rest Beach as the happiest years of his and Elena's life. Well, his life and her afterlife, I suppose, again. (laughs) Alas, the beach became more and more populated and people began poking around his shack, curious about the plane and Tonsler's other eclectic inventions. It was around this time with the Great Depression still lingering that Carl was let go from his job as an x-ray technician. So he still had a mysterious pension that arrived from Germany to survive on. Some historians believe that this is evidence that he was actually in the German army and this was his army pension. Got it. But Carl claimed it was from proceeds from a machine shop that he had owned before leaving Germany. So there's no (laughs) proof of either of those. Obviously, the German army thing seems more probable. 
Okay. In any case, he had enough money to resettle Elena and his airplane in a new secluded location. However, the new shack lacked the electricity needed to run his laboratory equipment, and Tanzler was forced to allow Elena's body to dry out and mummify. Ooh. This did nothing to dampen his passion for her. In fall of 1940, nine years since Elena's death and seven years since Tonsler had stolen her body from the crypt, rumors began to circulate that something grotesque was afoot at his shack. The rumors eventually reached Nana and Mario, Elena's sister and brother-in-law. They were Elena's last remaining family members. Her father, mother, and younger sister had all since passed away of tuberculosis. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Shit. And Nana was sick, too, but she was still alive. Okay. Nana was naturally extremely disturbed by the suggestion that Tanzler had tampered with her sister's corpse. She also was suspicious because after basically living in Elena's tomb for the first two years and literally living in her parents' house. Yeah. After those two years, he never went to the tomb again. So. How, How did he not get TB? I don't know. I really don't. He lived for a while after this. I wonder if some people – and guys, I have obviously no idea. I'm talking out of my ass right now. But I, I'm just wondering if some people are naturally immune to certain things. So I don't know how he didn't get it. Okay. But it looks like – it doesn't look like Mario got it either, who was married to Nana. Huh. So that's interesting too. But the rest of the family, who were all blood-related, all did get it. So Yeah. Weird. She complained to the authorities and the cemetery sexton that she believed her sister's crypt had been disturbed and demanded to have the coffin opened up to lay to rest the rumors once and for all. Mario informed Carl that they were gathering in the cemetery to investigate and Carl set off in a panic to attempt to conceal his secret, of course. There, he found Nana, Mr. Bethel, the cemetery sexton, and Mr. Pritchard, the undertaker. Nana was insisting that they open the coffin, which Tansler opposed vehemently, for good reason. The sexton and the undertaker were slightly on Tansler's side, loathing to open the casket of a woman who is now nine years dead. So they weren't, like, on his side because they were on his side. They were on his side because they were like, can we not do this? She's been dead for a real long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just totally assumed that she was in there, obviously. Yes. And you don't want to – Nobody should see their beloved ones after they've been rotting in a grave for nine years. No. No. Nana persisted, saying she only wanted to see that her sister was resting in peace. Carl managed to convince the sect and the undertaker that this was a family matter, and he suggested to Nana and Mario that he knew for sure that Elena was wondrously at peace. And if they were skeptical or worried, all they had to do to feel better was to accompany him to his house. (laughs) What? Uh Uh-huh. So this is how deluded this guy is. Once at his house, Carl proudly led the couple to Elena's corpse where it rested on his bed. He said, come here, Nana, and see how beautiful Elena is resting in her bed, in her silken garments, and with all her jewelry. Come and see. She could not have it better anywhere. I think it'll pacify you now. Oh, my God. What did Nana do? Well, Nana was not pacified. (laughs) Could you imagine? Nana probably fainted. 
Well, she went into full denial mode. In the dark candlelit room, Nana refused to accept that this weird patchwork zombie reconstructed wax cosmetic thing was her sister. She gasped and asked how long her sister had been with him. Seven years, he said. At first, she just could not accept this reality. And she demanded that her husband take her back to the cemetery and then they forced the sexton to open up the coffin because she wanted to believe that she was going to go back to the cemetery. She was going to open it up. She was just going to see some bones. And yeah. and this thing wasn't her sister. And her husband was like. Right of Frankenstein. Yeah. Her husband's like, babe, babe, I think that's your sister. Like we have to. We have to face facts here. This guy's nuts. And it kind of looks like your sister. <laughs> Babe. <laughs> Babe. I think I think that's your sis. Babe. <laughs> that's that's Daphelina. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Poor girl. So of course at this point, by the time it's actually like registering that this is what he's done, she flew into a rage, understandably, and demanded that he return Elena to her tomb. She's like, you're beyond reason. I do not know what to do with you. But if you put her back in the mausoleum, I won't press charges. We'll just like let this, let go. this go. Yeah. Tonsler flatly refused, saying that they would both be returned to the tomb upon his death, but not one moment sooner. So he wants to go with her when he dies. They're going to be buried together. Oh, my God. Horrified. I would be like, I can make that happen now. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> Absolutely, you would. Horrified, Nana and Mario left and contacted the authorities. After five days, Carl received a knock at the door. On October 5th, 1940, a motorcade headed by two sheriffs, then the Justice of the Peace, followed by the funeral car and several other cars, stopped in front of Von Kossel's house. As he opened the screen door, the sheriff presented Von Kossel with a warrant charging him with being in possession of a dead body. Politely, he asked me whether I was the person whose name was on the paper. I answered, yes, this was my name. He then asked me to show him the body. After seeing the body in bed, he inquired if it was true that I had had this body in my possession for over seven years. I answered in the affirmative. And who is she? asked the sheriff. She is my bride, Elena Oyhos. He asked further whether I had a certificate for the body. Well, yes, I have. Show it to me, please. After getting out her certificate from Elena's records, I showed it to him. He shook his head. This is her certificate of death. This isn't the certificate we want. I do not know of any other certificate required for the dead. I am sorry. We have to take you to the courthouse as you have no certificate. You may explain in court. So I followed the sheriff into the car. I noticed the funeral car driving up and two attendants stepping in my door. They carried Elena out in a wicker basket, putting her in the car. This audacity enraged me. I made a move to stop them. The sheriff held me on each side, pacifying me, telling me everything was all right. But I said, there is no security for my house. When strangers are going in and out at liberty, I protest against this violation of my rights. The sheriff answered, we are having the body placed in the funeral home where it is safer until your case is settled. Then you may get it back. I will see that nothing is removed and lock the doors and bring you the keys. Yeah, I... He's not getting this body back. It's like all your rights are gone, dude. <laughs> yeah, you've been living with a corpse that you stole. Can you have a modicum of shame about this and act like a normal person for once? I don't think he can. No. 
He loves that word pacifying, huh? Yes, he does. By the time Tanzler arrived at the courthouse, there was already the beginning of a media frenzy. Word had been circulating around the courthouse that somebody had been arrested for sleeping with a corpse, and the photographers and journalists were morbidly fascinated. Of course. Yeah, this is a huge story. Tanzler was charged for wanton and maliciously demolishing, disfiguring, and destroying a grave and held at $1,000 bail. As he couldn't pay, he remained in the county jail until his hearing was held. Immediately, Key West newspapers began to report on the strange events, detailing Tonsler's lengths to preserve his beloved against all odds. Mysteriously, rather than this becoming a Frankensteinian ghoul doctor story, many began to regard him as a tragic love hero. Weird. Whether disgusted or sympathetic, the public was fascinated by the bizarre case. The jailers allowed Tanzler to hold interviews, and he willingly shared his story with all interested journalists. When one headline read, Dead Girl's Highly Educated Lover Sees No Wrong in Removing Her from Crypt. Holder of Nine University Degrees Sits in Jail Dazed by Events Tells of Trying to Restore Life. Wow. On October 8th, Von Kossel faced his first hearing to establish whether or not he would have to stand trial in a criminal court. The papers reported that the public favor was shockingly on Tonsler Von Kossel's side. Oh, wow. I, like, how are they feeling bad for this guy? Sympathy on all sides were expressed today. This is from the paper. For the scientist, and the general hope advanced was that the state would see fit to free him. It is admitted, though, that no longer should he be allowed to keep the remains of his dead sweetheart. And this, it was understood, is just what the relatives of the dead girl will insist on. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Legally, there were three aspects Von Castle had to deal with. First, there was the original charge, wantonly and maliciously demolishing, disfiguring, and destroying a grave. The second legal problem was Von Castle's sanity. A three-man panel of doctors was assembled to make the determination. The third legal hurdle the Count faced involved another law under which Von Kossel could be prosecuted. As Judge Lord authoritatively pointed out to Von Kossel after the hearing, the unauthorized disinterring of the body of a deceased human being is an indictable offense both at common law and by statute regardless of the motive or purpose. The judge made it clear at the outset of the hearing that this was not a trial, simply a hearing to determine whether or not any laws had been broken, and that if Von Kossel was tried and convicted at a criminal proceeding, he would be liable for up to $500 in fines and up to two years in jail. Altogether, not so bad for corpse stealing. No. Mm-mm. And fucking a corpse? <laughs> yeah. First up on the stand was Nana, who described her torment upon seeing the mutilated doll body of her long-deceased sister laying in Von Kossel's bed, and how the family had been re-traumatized at the fact that the press was for some reason painting this deranged doctor as a romantic hero. Yeah. She also pointedly asked the judge, why won't the doctors who examined Elena's body make the findings public? What has Von Kossel done to my sister's body? Was he doing something too horrible for words? Which I think is the question we're all asking. Yeah. So the judge turns to Carl and asks, Count von Kossel, and this is from the transcripts, did you at any time during the more than seven years you had her dot, 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 kept her whatever, dot, 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 (laughs) did you at any time sexually molest the body of Elena Oyhos? To which von Kossel defiantly replied, no, your honor. I did not. She was mummified. To which Maury Povich, had he been there, would have asserted, 
And that is a lie. <laughs> because there was evidence that he had sexually compromised the corpse. Oh, God. And autopsy had been conducted on Elena's body shortly after she was removed from Von Kossel's home. And the findings were not revealed for decades. What? Uh-huh. Because they were deemed too improper for 1940. Oh, so it was finally – a Tropic Magazine article by John Dorschner that appeared on Sunday, March 5th, 1972, 20 years after Von Kossel's death and 32 years after his hearing and sanity evaluation that confirmed medically what had all along been whispered. So the author of the article interviewed Dr. Depu, who belatedly told what he had found during the autopsy. The breasts really felt real. In the vaginal area... I found a tube wide enough to permit sexual intercourse. Oh At the God. bottom of the tube was cotton. And in an examination of the cotton, I found there was sperm. Then I knew we were dealing with a sexual pervert. Oh, my God. Why did he put cotton in a tube in her vagina? I guess because it felt better than a mummified vag canal. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So the doctors did apparently disclose the findings to the officials, but it was decided to be something so disgusting and sensitive that they sealed all of the evidence and no one ever leaked the findings to the media. So Dr. Depu stated that there was concern for how Elena's family would react. And there was an assumption that this was like protecting the family. They obviously wouldn't <clears throat> want people to know that their sister's body had been desecrated for all these years. Yeah, but she's straight up asking in court to I know. I think she deserves to be told. And yeah. I don't I don't think that I think she was more interested in making sure he paid for his crimes than like debasing her dead sister's memory, which obviously yeah. this had nothing to do with her sister. Yeah. It's unclear whether or not Nana ever found out the truth of what Von Kossel was actually doing with her sister's corpse. Oh, that's devastating. I know. Nana then stepped down from the stand, and it was Carl's turn to make his case. He tried to tell the story as a grand love epic and even was bold enough to make a case for why he should get the body back. Wow. Balls. Balls. <laughs> To the horror of Nana and Mario and the judge's visual disgust. He claimed that he was still capable of resurrecting Elena through his scientific experiments. And thusly, returning the body to him was a matter of life and death. At this, the judge could no longer hold back and interrupted Von Kassel. So this is exactly what the judge said to him. Cool. Sir? You have had her body in your possession for seven years. Seven years. And she appears to be completely dead, lifeless, not alive. It seems to me that you don't understand. Count von Kassel, listen to me very carefully. What is left of Elena Oyhos is going to be buried. As the presiding justice of this hearing, that is my decision. The state attorney will decide whether or not to bring you to trial. The room was pin drop quiet. Von Kassel broke the silence. Now may I have Elena's body back, von Kassel demanded. <laughs> No, 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 you may not. You may not have her body back. She is going oh. to be buried. <laughs> no wonder they ha they have to explore sanity. They have to do a sanity hearing because he's like, learn to read the room guy. Like, oh my oh, God. no, you're not getting this body back. 
She is going to be buried. Mrs. Medina is her only living relative, and she wants her buried. You are no relative to Mrs. Oyhos. You have no claim to her body. In a rage, Von Kassel exclaimed, You can't do this to me. This isn't justice. Her father gave her to me. I paid for everything. Everything. The funeral, the caskets, the mausoleum. She is mine. To take her from me will mean the end of everything. You are forcing me to break my sacred promise to Elena. Nana Medina could no longer restrain herself. Von Kassel, Elena is going to be buried in the ground and rot like all of her ancestors. Order, order in the court. The gavel pounded and the judge paused for the courtroom to be quiet. Oh my God, circus. Circus. Can you imagine being that judge? No. He's like, are you serious, man? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So while Von Castle is being held for his sanity determination, the press is having a field day with this case. And Elena's corpse has become a bona fide celebrity. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Elena's body had been brought to the Lopez funeral home following the autopsy. And the funeral director did not know what to do with it. Like, usually they get normal, fresh dead bodies. And then they hold a viewing for the family. And, you know, then they bury it. Yeah. But they couldn't bury the body until these hearings were over. And not knowing what to do with it, and plus they were, like, getting phone calls from people that were interested in seeing the body, they decided to put out a public viewing of Elena. Oh, no. With, like, her modifications? With all of her modifications. Oh, no. My God. The line to see Elena went for blocks and blocks and blocks. The manager of the funeral home kept count, and over the week while the court proceedings were taking place, 6,850 people viewed the corpse bride. That's so fucked up. So fucked up. So this is what um, the author of this book, Ben Harrison, found some living people who had gone to see her. Okay. And this is what they said. The body was put on exhibit, put out for people to view it. It was at the Lopez funeral home, where the embalming room is now. It was just sitting inside. There was a doorway there, and it was laying on a cot, and they allowed people to walk by and look at it. And what I remember of it, to me, was a doll, a wax doll, very tiny and more like a child than an adult. Very lifelike, though, said another woman. A man who saw Elena was quoted as saying, the hair was real. It was her own hair. But the rest of it was absolutely, positively nothing but wax or something made out of cornstarch. Oh, my God. (laughs) Another viewer claimed that the body felt soft, just like if I touched your arm right now. And people were touching her. Oh, my God. That's so fucked. Can you you even imagine for a second, like, that people... (laughs) Like, what happens to us after we die, right? Depending on what your wishes are, you either go into the ground in your worm food or, you know, you get cremated or, you know, you eventually just go away. Can you imagine if somebody's like, oh, after you die, you're going to be somebody's fleshlight for seven years and then they're going to make you a famous person and put your dead body on display for almost 7,000 people to parade by. And come touch and squeeze you. And touch and squeeze you. Oh, my God. This is insane. So the last person said, a more detailed conscious viewer said of Elena's ensemble, she wore a cheap blue rayon robe. Her legs, quite full, were covered with heavy stockings. On her feet were cheap bedroom slippers. Her hands were covered with white gloves plastered down with wax. I couldn't help but notice protuberances of the hip bones. Okay, fashion please. She's been dead for nine years. (laughs) You don't have to insult her in her ensemble. (laughs) 
Jesus, can this woman just live or oh die, I guess? Oh, God. <laughs> Can't catch a break even in death. No. Her robe looks rather cheap. They said silk, but it's definitely rayon. It's definitely rayon. I don't know why she's getting all this attention. She's not even that good looking. <laughs> oh, my God. Ruthless. Ruthless. Oh. So now it's on to the sanity hearing. Around this time, Tonsler's estranged wife wrote to the sheriff's office. Dear sir, I note in the papers that Carl Tonsler is in custody. He is my husband and we have been separated for 11 years. His mind is troubled on account of many ways. It was impossible for us to live together. If my testimony as to his sanity is desirable, I will gladly tell all I know. Sincerely, Mrs. Doris Tanzler. So the newspapers found out about this and they went crazy because nobody knew the crazy doctor was married and had a wife who was still living in the state of Florida, you know? Yeah, that's insane. So a Key West newspaper uh, published this on October 10th, 1940. Lover's wife enters bizarre case, writes from Florida City she's ready to talk of Von Kossel. The estranged wife of Carl Tonsler von Kossel, which he said he left in Germany 16 years ago, turned up Thursday in Zephyr Hills, Florida, ready to tell all she knows about his sanity. Confronted with this letter, von Kossel read it through several times before saying, sure, we separated. She was jealous. She pulled a gun on me. In the scuffle, a shot was fired. I decided then and there that I would leave her. Oh, my God. None of that is. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Von Kossel insisted that he separated from his wife in Dresden, Germany, 16 years ago, and that he had not heard from her in 12 years. This was categorically untrue. Yeah. Later, he said that his sister, who resides in Zephyr Hills, had written him that his wife was with her. He had received no word from his sister since January, he said. Asked for the name of his sister in Zephyr Hills, Von Kossel said sharply, leave her out of this. I do not want her name to be brought into this. She is very old and sickly. Please get me some paper and an envelope, he asked Deputy Elwood. I want to write to my wife to tell her to keep out of this. I thought she had a divorce. (laughs) The papers are reporting. (laughs) So Doris Townsler's letter revealed her strong depth of character despite an undeserved humiliation, an unimaginable nightmare come true. For the real Mrs. Townsler, the hardworking, level-headed mother of their surviving daughter, She had learned only by the newspaper that her husband, the father of their child, not only had fallen in love with another woman, but had cared for Elena's body rather than taking care of his real-life children and wife. Yeah, so disgusting. Being abandoned was one thing, but having to endure the spectacle of Carl Tonsler was much worse. The curse of infamy and a feeling of guilt through marriage would follow and unfairly torment her for the rest of her life. From the day the articles began appearing in the newspapers, she'd be known in Zephyr Hills as the one who was married to the man who took the dead girl from the grave in Key West. Oof. Not her fault. No. It sounds like she was really young when she married him, too. Yeah. If, like, she was already mid-20s when they divorced and they'd already had two kids, you know? Oh, God. For whatever reason, the sanity board did not take the long-suffering Doris Tanzler up on her offer. The next three days, a board made up of two psychiatrists and one secretary listened to Carl's life story and his eventual obsession with Elena. Ultimately, the doctors on the board, despite the objections of some outside experts, declared Carl Tonsler von Kossel to be totally sane. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably good because they're probably going to charge him yeah, for I mean, more. I'm I'm unclear of what sanity means in this context. Like, do they mean that he was aware that what he was doing was wrong, so therefore he can be held accountable? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. They made it clear, however, that their decision had no bearing on Von Kossel's guilt or innocence of the criminal charges that he was potentially facing. Once again, the newspapers went wild. Several mental health professionals wrote op-eds criticizing the sanity sentence, claiming that this was a textbook case of necrophilia, and therefore Tanzer must be mentally ill. The definition for necrophiliac, of course, is somebody who is sexually excited or attracted to dead bodies. But Tanzer wasn't attracted to all dead bodies, just Just Elena's. So I wonder if this gets into a tricky category. Like, he doesn't, A, have a condition in which, you know, it can be treated through therapy and medication, you know. And also, it's not like he's at a risk to be, like, breaking into morgues and boinking other bodies. No, but he could. I mean, considering that he, like, stalked her and was a predator towards her while she was alive, took advantage of her, I feel like he could very well just go do that again to someone else who's sick. That's true. That's very true. I don't think he should be allowed to practice medicine, obviously. No, but I don't I also don't think he should be allowed to just walk around and seduce or try to seduce someone else and do this again. I mean, it's horrible. So next a grand jury convened to decide how they were going to approach the criminal charges and what was obviously sure to be a huge media circus trial. Yep. Ultimately, they announced that the statute of limitations had passed on the charge of molesting or destroying a grave. It Apparently, the statute of limitations on that specific charge was only two years, and Elena's corpse had been with Tanzler for over seven. So they probably could have successfully charged him with the unauthorized disinterring of a body, but it seems like they decided to let him go free instead to avoid a highly publicized court drama. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So I think that is just they didn't want this to be the trial that defined Key West. It would have been a spectacle. A huge spectacle. Also, there was people that were like beating down the doors to try to get into the courtroom to be spectators. And I don't think that they had the budget for the security measures and everything that would have needed to happen if they had this. And they were like, you know, he's a creep, but he's probably not dangerous to other people. Like, let's just, you know, bury Elena somewhere where he doesn't know and just let this chapter of our lives pass because this is too fucking weird wow yes so they ordered that elena's remains would be buried under secret cover and never revealed to the public and certainly not to dr carl tanzer von kossel so carl was released from jail and set free but this was no cause for celebration for him he was angry despondent and depressed that his life with elena had officially come to an end oh my god i mean i guess that was probably punishment enough huh Oh, he was devastated. He could not give a shit what people thought of him. He didn't care that everyone was like, oh, you're a creepy dude. All he wanted was that body. So gross. So gross. So under the cover of darkness, Elena was laid to rest for the final time. 
three people were entrusted with Elena's burial. Key West Police Chief Bienvenido Perez, Lopez Funeral Home Undertaker Benjamin Sawyer, and Cemetery Sexton Otto Bethel. The official troika discussed at length how they should go about their task, and it was during these macabre discussions that they made a solemn promise to each other. Never, ever in their lifetime would they reveal the location of the grave. In order to hide the burial, they dismembered Elena and put what was left of her into an 18-inch square casket, which could be buried secretly much more easily. 18-inch? 18 inches. Oof. Later, Chief Perez recounted the harrowing night they smuggled Elena and the digging equipment into the cemetery. Do you think that's deep enough? I stepped back into the black pool of shadow under the quietly rustling palms and leaned on my shovel, looking inquiringly at Undertaker Ben Sawyer and Sexton Bethel. The time was sometime after 3 a.m. on a dark summer morning. The place was a secluded spot in the Key West City Cemetery, and my mission was to bury in a secret spot which could never be found all that remained of the beautiful Elena Milagro Oijos. That'll do, Ben said laconically, but I knew his nerves were about to snap as mine were. For another hour before, Ben and I had cut up with a hacksaw all that was left of the body of the beautiful Elena, which wasn't very much, and packed the remains in a small, specially made box, 18 inches cube wise. All right, hand me the box, I ordered. Bethel and Sawyer passed it to me. Carefully, gently, for she'd been my dear friend, I placed the small box containing Elena Oijos into the shallow hole I'd dug. Then we filled it in, tamping the dirt down with infinite patience. After that, we replaced the grass and other growth above the spot until it was impossible to tell a hole had been dug at all. That was important, for no one must ever know the resting place of Elena Milagro Oijos. And to this day, no one knows but me. Ben's dead. Bethel's dead. And the secret will go with me to my own grave. And it did! Wow. On his deathbed, relatives of Bienvenido Perez begged him to reveal Elena's location once and for all, but he remained true to his promise. Unlike Elena's body, the secret of her final resting place had been taken to the grave and it actually stayed there. Oh, no. <laughs> Bienvenido is kind of a hero. He is. I also love that name. I know. Bienvenido Perez. Doesn't that sound like a hero from a telenovela? Yeah. <laughs> or a hero from Key West. Exactly. Von Kassel was left jobless and virtually homeless after the intense newspaper coverage and bizarre newfound fame. Bereft without his beloved Elena and disenchanted with the city officials who had kept them apart, he decided to move back in with his sister in Zephyr Hills, Florida, which, unfortunately for his wife, was the same town she lived in. I figured. Oof. Before he moved, however, he had one last nasty piece of business to conduct. Oh, God. Still bristling at the audacity of the court system to charge him with wanton and willful destruction of a tomb, Tonsler decided to really show them what destruction looked like. The night before he was set to move, hauling with him his giant wingless airplane, he set up dynamite sticks with a 24-hour timer around the mausoleum he had at one time so lovingly built for his bride. Whoa. Mm -hmm. The explosion occurred four hours after Von Kassel and his caravan had left town, Initially, the newspapers reported that the vandalism was thought to be an act of revenge against Von Kassel, but privately, it seems the police discovered the timer and they knew who was truly to blame. He wow. also did admit to it in his memoirs later on. 
Okay. However, technically the mausoleum still belonged to Von Kassel. No one had been injured and the adjoining plots had been relatively untouched. So the authorities decided to leave well enough alone. It was once again too bizarre, unpleasant, and publicity inviting to pursue more charges against the demented doctor. Wow. He's just getting off with this stuff scot-free because no one wants to deal with his creepy ass. This psychopath. Mm-hmm. Carl moved his belongings onto his sister's property and began to diligently write his memoirs from the cabin of his flightless plane. The memoirs of which much of Undying Love, which is the book we're using, and this story is based on, were eventually published by a pulp magazine publication called Fantastic Adventures under the title The Secrets of Elena's Tomb. The magazine paid pretty much nothing, and Carl was left destitute in his later years. It was only by the grace of an extremely kind and unbelievably unlikely person that he survived at all. His estranged wife, Doris, gave him a weekly allowance from her own modest salary to make sure he remained cared for. Wow. She's a saint. She's the real hero in this story. She is. I'm giving the hero award to her, Bienvenido, and the judge who has some really good lines. Yeah. (laughs) In 1952, after neighbors noticed that the eccentric old man hadn't been seen for days, they alerted the police to do a welfare check. When the patrol officers entered the home, they were not entirely surprised to find that the old man had passed away in his bed. What did shock them was the remarkably realistic wax doll that lay next to him. Yes. Carl had made another replica of Elena. Stop it. Stop Stop. (laughs) And it was by her side that he took his eternal rest. Oh, my God. That's what he was spending Doris's money on, Uh making another corpse bride. Yep. (sighs) Perhaps in death he found the peace with his beloved that he had never had in life. Or perhaps, I really hope, what happened is that Elena got a heavenly restraining order. (laughs) And oh end. my god. <laughs> Can you even? I cannot actually. I you had to have made this up. Was this not the perfect Halloween story? This is this is this takes the cake for sure. I know I'll never be able to top it. Like I'm hoping we do this show for many many Halloweens to come and I still think that this is going to be the topper. I can't imagine finding something better than a corpse bride. We'll see, babe. I mean, there might be others. You never know. God knows. You know what? People keep surprising us. They keep doing fucked up things every single day. So who knows? Somebody might top it this year. 2020 is not over. (laughs) 2020 is not over and 2020 is fucked up. So. (laughs) Yeah. So. Oh, my God. Jesse. Wow. Well, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. I really hope you liked the story. If you did, or even if you didn't, but you in general like Andy and me and our podcast, (laughs) please, please, please give us a review and and tap that five stars. It has helped us out so much. We're, you know, getting to so many new people. And big thanks to everyone who left reviews this week. Uh, We were really touched by your words. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. In conclusion... 
I don't know who needs to hear this, but dead people can't consent. Don't do it. <laughs> for, for future reference, you don't normally have to take off your clothes for an x-ray. So if your tech is asking you to do so, you should run. Especially if they specify and your undergarments. Creep. So creep. And as always, we're all just one creepy doctor away from being someone's corpse flashlight. Oh, God. Ooh. Happy Halloween, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.